Welcome to the U.S. Max Today podcast, produced by the Center for U.S. Mexican Studies at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy. In today's podcast, U.S. Max fellow Gilles Serra discusses clientelism throughout the world in his talk titled Four Dimensions of Clientelism, a Typology of Threats and Promises to Voters. So thank you. Of course, I, I, I want to thank the center for having me here and all this great group of fellows for sharing the experience. And thank you to Simeon for accepting to, to discuss my paper. This is part of an ongoing interest uh, of mine. I have done research on clientelism and, uh, and vote buying and vote coercion, uh, more specifically in, uh, in Mexico. And uh, this, is, this, is, uh, this broadens the, my, my interest to... Um, it is part of my reading of the literature and my commentary of the literature as it is uh, around the world. Uh, and um, I wanted to start with some uh, uh, motivations about the way I see, uh, I see the literature, what I want to do with it, and what I want to comment about uh, uh, the literature. Um, uh, clientelism is a, a phenomenon or a concept that uh, matters. Whatever it is, and this is what, uh, we're going to, what I'm going to discuss today, scholars agree that it has a negative effect on democracy. There are diverse claims that uh, through clientelism voters lose their freedom, that, uh, uh, that the poor voters lose their voice in the election, that uh, accountability is reversed such that voters become accountable to parties instead of parties being accountable to voters that inefficient trend that clientelism and vote buying uh, create inefficient transfers towards uh, towards voters instead of uh, that um, uh, substitute for programmatic policies and so on and so forth how does the existing literature look like i i i believe that um there has been not confusion but it had there has there have been conflicting or at least of a diversity of definitions of what clientelism is and this is what i want to address but the literature is very is very large there have been several waves and generations of um, of, uh, of scholars who have been interested in this in this topic generally some regions have been researched disproportionately you know there's some typos and the typos i'm going to i'm going to blame on on my research assistant who helped me uh, do this, they're all, they're all, they're all hers. Uh, Latin America has been very well studied for vote buying, America, Africa for violent coercion and disenfranchisement. More recently, uh, research um, regions are Asia and Eastern Europe, which I will mention in the talk. The Middle East has more, has more recently been studied as well. There's some surprising research from some advanced democracies in Europe and also in the United States and so on. It's, it's really a large body of literature. So I think there, is, there really is a global enthusiasm for understanding what clientelism is, whatever it is. Uh, and what I do here is I reviewed recent papers from diverse regions uh, and different methodologies. And I have to say, uh, for today's talk, I made the, the, the decision, the, perhaps the controversial <laughs> decision, that none of my examples will come from Mexico. Uh, I hope uh, Rafael doesn't kick me out of the, of the center for this, because I thought it would be, this would be more interesting uh, perhaps more interesting for the, for the audience and also more helpful to me because I do plan to write, uh, pay, continue writing about Mexico and perhaps applying all this typology with examples from Mexico. And the paper has some mentions of Mexican examples, but I thought this would be what I could get from the audience if you can come up with examples uh, that, are, that are Mexican and maybe you can, you can suggest them to me. Uh, what, should we, what should we understand as clientelism? There really is an enormous literature, as I just mentioned, but there is no consensus exactly about what clientelism means. It has become an umbrella term that encompasses a lot of stuff. 
a lot of things. So it really has gone through conceptual stretching, and it, this has made it difficult to compare cases described as clientelism across authors. So this conceptual um, ambiguity really, uh, I believe, as others do, undermines uh, scholarly, uh, scholarly research. So what I do in this paper is the following. I try to focus on subcategories with narrow definitions. Uh, I try to sketch a general and inclusive uh, definition of clientelism, and I try to identify some essential dimensions along which um, clientelist practices may differ. Uh, and then I propose a detailed topology based on those dimensions of variation. And I have a lot of examples, so I'll try to speak quickly. Just a few words about, uh, just in general, the theory of uh, concept formation. Uh, it sort of informed my, my exercise here and what I'm trying to do. A lot of this comes from, from uh, David Collier, of course, who has been thinking about this for, for, for many years. And uh, Simeon knows him well, because uh, David was Simeon's advisor, I believe. Um, so what these authors propose uh, is that we should have an overarching uh, concept. Uh, this concept should be measured, which is the, the concept that is measured, to use their word, by the topology. And um, this concept should have some underlying dimensions, which are the elements of variation in the concept. And there should be some subordinate uh, concepts, which are the concepts that form the typology. And the relationship between the overarching concept and the subordinate concepts is what they call kind hierarchy. And this it has been named several things throughout, um, uh, throughout time. I think uh, Sartori called this relationship the ladder of abstraction, and this author, even David Collier called it something else in his 1993 uh, paper, I think. Uh, hierarchy, abstraction hierarchy, I think he called them. Now they're calling it kind hierarchy. It's, a subordinate con it's the idea that subordinate concepts should be a kind of in relation to the overarching concept. And then they propose to have matrices, which, uh, in their words, cross-tabulates the subordinate concepts in rows and columns. So this is actually exactly what I will do. Uh, throughout throughout the paper, uh, in my in my creation of the type of the typology. So I propose, based on my reading of the literature and my intuition and what I have observed in Mexico, I propose three dimensions. And you will feel cheated because my title says four dimensions, uh, and my paper has four dimensions, but I have just removed one of them because I thought I wouldn't have time to, to, to present it here. So just in the interest of time, I have reduced it to these three dimensions. Um, but, uh, uh, but you're not cheated, the, uh, the fourth one is in the paper if you're interested. Um, so, and I start, as David Collier told me to do in his paper, with, an, with, an over, uh, with my attempts to have an overarching concept. Um, so this is the definition I propose. The definition is slightly different from the one I wrote down in the paper, just because I've been sort of thinking about it a bit more in, 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 the, next, in the past uh, few days. But this is, um, this is what I propose. I propose a definition that is very abstract and inclusive, because of course my interest is, more to, um, is rather to think about uh, the subcategories and try to define those a bit, a bit more narrowly. But this is an area, of course, where I feel um, and which might, which might um, lead to criticism, and this is, this is one where I feel more vulnerable to criticism. So if you guys want to think about it and, and tell me something that is missing or whether I should um, define it differently, then that, that, is, that is, of course, welcome. So in my view, electoral clientelism for this paper uh, consists on a party or a candidate enrolling some type of broker to provide some type of incentive to some type of voter to influence these voters' electoral intentions in a non-programmatic way. 
that's it, very abstract. And now I'm going to unpack uh, uh, this definition into, the, into, into the, its component parts of RDA. The first one is that I believe clientelism could have, is a dimension uh, along the lines of the type of incentive uh, that could be positive or negative. So most of the literature has been concerned with voters being bought with positive incentives, uh, but it has neglected an equally worrisome concern, which is that voters could be um, coerced with negative incentives instead of only being bought with positive incentives. So these two, these two types of incentives, I believe, often coexist and complement each other. They are they're basically the candidates and the party's strategy of having carrots and sticks or using plata or plomo. So this type of, uh, this type of um, strategies, I believe, they do coexist. And um, I'm not the first one to talk about this, but they have this, this response to, or this continues a very recent uh, and still small um, uh, literature that tries to incorporate these negative incentives into, into the positive incentives that have already been studied in clientelism. So what I do is I try to incorporate threats in addition to promises as part of the menu of persuasion. I talked about this in, uh, in, in a publication in 2015 in a paper that no one re has read, no one has cites. Then uh, <laughs> Marisa Petrova uh, introduced, it really introduced the topic in 2016, in a paper that has become very influential, very impactful, and other authors have been uh, continuing this. So what I do is then I combine this dimension with the, with the other two dimensions, and that's going to derive into matrices, as Collier uh, suggested, and that's going to be my typology. Yes? Can you elaborate a little bit what type of negative incentives you see in the Mexican case? Absolutely, I'm going to, not in the Mexican case because this is what I wanted you guys to tell me about, but I will tell, I'll give you negative incentives in many other parts of the world, okay? So the, my second dimension is the type of broker, which is also, uh, um, so, the, so the, the idea or the, um, the revelation that, that a lot of the clientelism is mediated by brokers is very much in vogue right now, and uh, I think it, was, it wasn't started, but it was popularized by Susan Stocks and Tad Donning and, and their co-authors in the 2013 book. This is the, this is the definition that I propose since I'm trying to be a bit uh, rigorous in, the, in, in my treatment of concepts. So let's see, this is the one that I propose. Brokers are political agents with direct access to voters who can operate on behalf of a party or candidate running in an election by making threats or promises to influence these voters' cho electoral choices, okay? So, and there's plenty of names, by the way. I should have put a list of all the, of all the uh, names that have been used uh, across countries in uh, uh, for for brokers but you know in Mexico we, we, we would call them operadores políticos or gestores this type of thing okay and that's all I'm going to say about Mexico no, I'm just kidding. so by combining these two dimensions then I obtain uh, um, a table of this kind so I'm going to consider as I said two types of incentives which would be the positive ones and the negative ones and I'm going to divide the types of brokers which are this is not an exhaustive list but it really captures most of what the literature talks about so one type of broker is a government employee the other one is a party operative and the other one would be private or public employer okay and through examples I think this will this will be clarified of what you know what I mean by each of these concepts okay. so here start basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to fill out these six types of, of clientelism with uh, with examples okay on the top left corner we have what I'm calling bureaucratic bribing what is it? A state employee is an impactful broker that can be mobilized by an incumbent party or candidate. So government bureaucrats could offer administrative favors and preferential treatment to a chosen group of citizens if they wish to influence their vote. And I think some of you are already thinking, 
about you know what the, what this means and whether they have perhaps been subject to these themselves or yourselves okay so here's here's one of the examples that i want to give the example will come from argentina called the programa nacional de seguridad alimentaria um, uh, this example comes from the work by rebecca witch shapiro a lot of my examples will come from argentina there is <laughs> Because the, the literature reflects this, and I, I, ha, I still don't know whether Argentina is a country where there is most clientelism in, in, in the world, or whether it's just the country where political scientists pay more, pay more attention to clientelism in the, in the world. That's thoroughness, that explains 100% of the baby. Yeah, yeah, but, <laughs> but also you guys care a lot about it and write a lot about it, which is, which is great. Well, Rebecca is not Argentinian, but she focuses on Argentina. So what is this? This is a large food assistance program in Argentina. Uh, they distribute flour, sugar, rice, tomato paste, right, pasta, oil, milk, and most important of all, yerba. The mayor is oftentimes involved personally in the selection of program beneficiaries by drawing up or altering the list of recipients to claim personal credit for the program. Uh, and mayors have been seen, or Rebecca saw uh, some of these mayors present at food distribution. So she believes that this is really clientelism at work. Okay. Uh, because the mayors are trying to claim credit for giving this, uh, for handing out all this food, which in reality comes from a, from a federal or a national program. And she focused on smaller towns with dense social ties where local politicians may be able to monitor the voters' electoral behavior on election days. So this is my example of what I mean by bureaucratic bribing. The other, the, the second type of, um, of clientelism that I, that I have in my typology is called uh, uh, bureaucratic intimidation. Uh, amid, why? Because a mid-level bureaucrat can threaten the recipients of a social program with interrupting the disbursement of benefits if she suspects they have voted unfavorably. So this is sort of the opposite or the, the flip of the coin of the previous one where there, so there exists some recipients of a program and that there is a threat on behalf of the government that this program will be removed. Uh, one of the examples comes from post-communist countries. This comes from uh, uh, research by Isabella Mares. In Romania, the legal affairs expert from the local city hall was involved or served as a broker with voters who needed uh, her services. This comes from the interviews she made in Romania. But interviews from people in Bulgaria revealed another example. In the months before the election, the services at the pensions office at the municipal hospital were provided with a reminder that people who voted for the Socialist Party can continue to enjoy preferential treatment. Okay, so this is the type of uh, type of things that we can see under this type of clientelism called bureaucratic intimidation. But the third one, it's called partisan bribing. It refers to the role of political parties in fostering clientelism. The other example comes again from Argentina in Buenos Aires, where nearly, as our as our Argentinian colleague just reminded us, around Buenos Aires, nearly all the brokers are attached to the Peronist Party. And the brokers receive a variety of resources from candidates to buy votes. Some of the examples that have been found are medicine, clothes, appliances, bricks, zinc, sheets, and marijuana, okay, and, uh, and other types of drugs. These are used to buy votes in the suburbs of, um, of Buenos Aires. Uh, and this is what one of the brokers says to justify why he does that. He says, well, of course, I'm not stupid. I know that I know I need to deliver the votes. I give the food to the poor people who will vote for my candidate. I need to sustain my share of the votes, but they certainly need this help, meaning, you know, they are poor, so I'm doing something good for them, so it's not bad for me to be buying their votes. This is basically the way uh, the workers are justifying what they're doing. 
Another type is partisan intimidation, which is manifested in regions where parties act, party activists harass citizens and as pre-electoral intimidation and post-electoral retribution. This includes negative incentives that may be peaceful, but I think if I really want to exemplify this type of clientelism, I wanted to give an example of political violence. So this example from the, comes from, uh, from uh, Pakistan, the MQM party or Mutahira uh, Qomi movement. I practiced it last night several times, uh, watching, uh, watching videos in uh, uh, in Pakistan, <laughs> from Pakistani news. It's a political party in Pakistan representing the minority ethnic group, the Mohajir. And uh, this has been particularly successful in mixing ballots with bullets. It was founded as an organization of militant students. In addition to a political party, it became an autonomous armed group that uh, security forces cannot control. So, and it has carried out indiscriminate communal killings against the Sindhi ethnic group, especially in the districts that it controlled around Karachi. So this is a political party that also serves as a, really as a, as, a milit- as, a, as an armed militia, and it, it combines bullets and, bullets and bullets and ballots. So this party has electorally mobilized one ethnicity while carrying out violence, uh, violence against another. And this is an example of what I am calling into partisan intimidation. The last two, has to, the last two uh, type of clientelism have to, have to do with um, uh, the workplace. And this research is very interesting and also very recent. Okay? So in addition to deploying state bureaucrats and party representatives, politicians can also deploy non-partisan brokers such as employers with market power over voters. And the exa- this example comes from a very, very interesting uh, uh, research, uh, research from Russia by a professor in the Colum- in, uh, University of Columbia, Frey. A survey that these guys ran in uh, Russia asked the following to, to employed voters. Did your employer try to influence your decision to turn out in the 2011 parliamentary elections? It turns out that 25 responded yes, that they were influenced by their employer. And they also found that the incidence was much greater among employees of the federal government, 37%, even more so than federal enterprises and, uh, and NGOs. So we can see from, from this research that really you have employers, private and public, who are pressuring through, the, who are pressuring in some way, I'm calling it here bribing because the employees can really offer positive things such as bonuses if people go if people go vote or vote the right way. Okay, but employers, it turns out, can also intimidate their their employees. In addition to positive incentives, private or public employers can also appeal to negative incentives in attempting to influence their employees' electoral behavior. They can threaten their workers with targeted layoffs, reductions in wages, and exclusion from employer-provided housing, for example. And also from these authors, uh, I'm going to cite um, uh, an example from Russia. They, in a different experiment, they ran a list experiment where they're asking respondents, over the last two months, it was made clear to you that problems would arise for you if you did not vote. So the fact that they're asking about problems, then this makes me categorize this, re- this type of clientelism as intimidation. And they found that, yes, 70% of employed respondents experienced, that, uh, experienced intimidation before the elections, but their non-employed respondents did not really um, experience this type of intimidation. So they think this is evidence of uh, what I'm calling workplace intimidation. So I'm going to talk about now the third dimension that I consider to be essential and fundamental to the clientelist exchange, and I think I'm doing fine in time, which is the type of voter, okay? So again, this is another topic that has been very researched and, uh, and mentioned even, even in the first generations, which is basically uh, trying to answer the question, who is being bought? What are the voters that are being targeted? 
And the answer has sort of changed through time, both in the literature and I think in reality. And I'm going to simplify it to only three categories, which also follow a more modern tradition. I subdivide verse according to the genuine predispositions, vote for the patron before any incentives. So I'm basically going to divide voters in three kinds, the supporter, the undecided, and the opposed, with respect to the patron who's trying to engage in clientelism with them. And, and if, I, if I combine that with, with these two types of incentives, positive, positive and negative, it also leads to six types of clientelism. And that's all I'm going to present today. So these six types and the previous six types leads to 12 types of clientelism that I'm trying to introduce and define more, uh, more precisely. And, uh, you know, I should mention... <laughs> I should mention that other authors uh, have also sort of uh, subdivided voters in similar ways. And there's a famous table introduced by Simeon actually in his work that has some similar characteristics. And we can talk later about how my table differs from his table. Turnout buying is the first type, the bribing of, uh, which I'm, uh, I'm defining as the bribing of sympathetic voters by politicians to persuade them to vote instead of abstaining. And uh, you know, let's just make it let's just make it clear from the outset that this concept has been popularized by Simeon, and it really, in my view, really helped change uh, change the way we think about clientelism by many of us now thinking that turnout buying is is perhaps a better way to explain what is going on than actual vote buying in many contexts. So one in, one instance or one example is making it cheaper for t for citizens to commute to the polls. Another example, surprise surprise, comes from Buenos Aires as well. Brokers provide transportation on election day to ensure that targeted recipients turn out to vote. So uh, Sara Saga, who is uh, um, an Argentinian uh, political scientist, do you know do you know this person, Sara Saga? Yeah. Priest. Yeah, that's that's what I, I realized. He's also a priest, uh, or he's mainly a priest now. But he wrote some this this great political science papers. He he's so intriguing to me. I just. I'd love to meet him one day. And I think you, I think you interviewed him at some point and he gave you more data. He's a fellow caller student. Huh? He's a fellow caller student. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, and uh, so he wrote, some, he wrote some great papers with, uh, with, this, with all these interviews that he made. Because I imagine because he was a priest, he spent a lot of time in the, in the suburbs of Buenos Aires, so everyone trusted him. And, uh, and he was able to interview over 100 brokers who were basically telling him the truth. I always imagine whether he came with, you know, dressed as a priest. And then, because that would be a great way to interview and make them tell you the truth. So anyway, he, one of the things that he confessed, one of the, um, one of the things that he found was that um, in 2014, it was observed that he observed that brokers around Buenos Aires hired everyone in the area who had a car to drive people to the polls. And he, uh, people paid them 15 and, and coupons for gas. So this is an example of, of uh, what people are now calling, calling turnout buying. The other side of the coin is what I'm calling turnout co coercion, which is uh, the complement to the previous uh, type of clientelism. And uh, the example I want to give comes from Zimbabwe. The ZANU-PF uh, is the incumbent party, as many of you know, that, and it has excelled at this, excelled at this type of uh, strategy. So, for example, in primary elections during, uh, uh, you know, in the ZANU-PF, um, they are open to all ordinary party members, and the party instructs rural voters of the necessity of turning out massively. The party's message, according to Bratton, who, who wrote the paper where I took this from, is carried out to the grassroots forcefully through the government ministers, traditional village chiefs, government ministers, and military officers. So when the military officer, officer tells you that, you know, it would be good for you to vote, I'm calling this turnout coercion. Okay, and um, they because they are really enforcing party discipline. And uh, they also the authors also observed that village headmen or village chiefs 
they march voters on mass to the polling stations, and they also fill up busloads uh, with unregistered youths that are transported to vote with fake registrations. So these are examples from Zimbabwe. Okay, vote choice buying. This is vote buying. Okay, this whatever. This is what a lot most. Yes, uh, most of the literature on clientelism focuses on vote buying. Okay, so. People before me, such as Simeon, have argued that vote buying as a concept has also been stretched. People now call vote buying too many things, okay? So this is why I'm proposing to calling it voters buying, which I think is more precise. And I propose this definition since I'm trying to be a bit rigorous uh, in, in this paper, okay? So the tar- it is, it's the targeted distribution by political agents of positive incentives to voters who already plan to turn on turning out with the expectation that they will choose a given party or candidate at the ballot box. So you may agree or disagree with the definition, but it is consistent with the, with the dimensions that I'm proposing in the typology. So some examples are the following. One example is the following. This, I don't know who knows this paper, but it's so impressive. And, uh, uh, reading it is really like sometimes my, uh, my jaw drops when I, when, I read, when, I, when I read this paper, okay? It's an example of massive vote choice operation in Taiwan. Um, the story is as follows. In a rural township of roughly 20,000 voters in 1993, the incumbent mayor was seeking re-election, uh, a re-election and uh, this mayor was highly praised across Taiwan. He was competent, popular, and he was leading in the polls. But the opposition party, the Kuomintang, uh, KMT, which, uh, which uh, you know, many of you, uh, I think, are familiar with or should be familiar with because there are a lot of interesting parallels between the KMT and the PRI in Mexico that are interesting to explore. And Joy Langston has explored some of these parallels. The KMT was in the position, so, and it wanted to buy enough voters, enough votes to ensure victory. It gave payment to 14,000 voters representing 67% of the electorate. So here it is, a party that, that bought 67% of the electorate. I mean, the party really wanted to win, okay? For each vote, it paid 300 Taiwanese dollars, which corresponds to 10 American dollars, equivalent to the cost of two meals in a regular restaurant. And you have to wonder, how, how did the authors know this, okay? So, and I don't know exactly, but uh, one of the authors, Wong, named Wong, he had incredible access to, to the party uh, while he was doing this, so I don't know. If, I don't know, do you know what, like, how he had this access? I don't know if he was a member of the party or maybe relative to someone, we don't know. But he had just very, very, um, very interesting access to what was going on. So the KMT's operation was successful. He won the election with 51% of the vote. So this is the sad part of the story. The even more sad part of the story uh, for the KMT is that this was a highly inefficient operation. The KMT received less than 8,000 votes. Wait. But it bought 14,000, okay? It bought 14,000 votes, only got 8,000 votes. So they call this leakage. Leakage is all the voters that you, that you buy and don't vote for you, okay? So almost half of the voters who accepted money for, to, uh, to vote for the, uh, the Kuomintang uh, did not vote for it, okay? So the reverse buying is vote choice coercion. This is a negative version of vote choice buying. It's the manipulation of citizens' electoral decisions by intimidating them. An example comes from uh, the United States, but also from Latin America, in fact, uh, from before, uh, before the, um, the vote was uh, secret or before we had the Australian ballot, okay? So 
try to transpose yourself historically to a period where the vote was not secret. This is a bit hard to imagine for, for us, but this is what, how elections around the world started. Okay? Before, the vote was secret, and then the vote was secret, but we didn't have the Australian ballot. So even then, you had, um, uh, you had problems in terms of clientelism. Before the Australian ballot, parties had to print their own paper ballots. They were easily distinguished uh, visually with paper thickness, color, and size. Hence, the electoral behavior could be monitored. And it was monitored who by whom. Uh, the large landowners were monitoring their peasants or their laborers. Okay? How did they do that? Um, they really tried to control their voters, their peasants' votes. So landlords of large communes forced their employees to register to vote. Sometimes, sometimes, my friend Daniel Gingrich documented this in Brazil, sometimes landowners signed the registration on behalf of their, of their illiterate uh, laborers. And sometimes the employees would even go with, uh, with, their, with their laborers or their inclinos to vote uh, with their employees. And they, of course, they supplied them with the paper ballots from conservative right-wing uh, parties. And because they, controlled the because they controlled the land, they also prevented socialist parties from coming to, to, give, um, uh, to give ballots to the laborers, okay? So, and the interesting result from this research is that once the Australian ballot was introduced, uh, Robinson and Balland and, and my friend Daniel Gingrich find that the vote for socialist parties surged. In with the introduction of the Australian ballot. I, th I think that's very interesting. Abstention buying is the reverse of this. No, I'm sorry. Abstention buying is, is a different type of clientelism that I think is very intriguing. And uh, I have to say, this is, this is, I think, very logical to talk about abstention buying. It comes very naturally from the typology that I introduced, but it's not necessarily very easy to find in, in the empirical world. Uh, world. <clears throat> this this uh, corresponds to patrons providing benefits to opposed citizens for not voting. It's a method offered to, to the subgroup of opposed citizens using positive incentives. I think it's derived naturally from combining my two dimensions, the method offered to the subgroup of opposed citizens using positive incentives. However, it is difficult to find in empirical literature. And I'm going to get this, I, I, I take this quote from, uh, from Simeon's uh, book, um, from his research in Brazil. He finds from interviews that in Bahia, the vast majority of interviewees proclaimed they had never heard of this strategy, but an example is provided by a counselor who explained the, el the elderly tell stories that someone came to the house with money, took all the documents, so nobody could vote, okay? So again, if you can think of ways for me to fill out this type of manipulation practices with Mexican examples, I would really, I would really appreciate it, and this is something I could. I could really get from this from this audience. The, light, the last type of clientelism that I that I introduce is is, uh, is called abstention and coercion. And of course, this there are there are peaceful ways, and there are examples that I give of peaceful ways of obtain, of obtaining abstention and coercion, um, where political actors force citizens into abstaining from attending the polls. But I think the, if if I want a really stark example, then I will rely on on non peaceful. Um, uh, examples or, or methods, okay? And I'm going to give this one from Kenya. Uh, this is work from Boone, uh, who studied, uh, Catherine Boone, who studied this, this phenomenon in Kenya. In the highlands, the state has the ability to revoke and reallocate, reallocate land rights arbitrarily. Local rules can punish and disenfranchise non-supporters by revoking ownership of their homes. Rural communities that do not support the ruling party are targets of land expropriations. 
And how do they do this? The government does this, does this by sending armed uh, policemen who show up uh, to drive them out of their farms. So one ethnicity, when one ethnicity has the incumbent party in power, they try to, they try to disenfranchise by removing the other ethnicity from their land so they will not vote in that district. And then again, the provincial administration equips, deploys, and trains militias of young warriors to terrorize burn houses and kill villagers to enable seizure of their land. This is what I call abstention coercion, okay? So this is it, and I'm going to just conclude with a few, a few thoughts uh, of what I tried to do and, uh, with, this, with this exercise, so with this endeavor, okay? I sought to disaggregate electoral clientelism along three fundamental dimensions, incentive brokers, and voters, as a working definition, every client, I propose that every clientelist definition involves some type of broker carrying some type of transfer of some type of incentive to some type of voter. These dimensions are orthogonal to each other. They coexist as complements that can be combined, as I, as I think I showed. And I believe, or I try to bring some conceptual clarity to complex phenomena by calling it names that are a bit more precise. Uh, finally, I think this topology can be used as a dependent variable to answer the question, who has, how has clientelism changed? It can also serve as, a dependent, as an independent variable if you're trying to answer the question, what are the consequences of different types of clientelism? So I think this, might, this type of exercises, not mine necessarily only, but this type of exercises could motivate more empirical work. That's it. Thank you. And look forward to your comments. Thank you for listening to the U.S. Mex Today podcast, the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy contributes to the ongoing integration process between U.S. and Mexico by providing a forum of thought leaders to engage in public dialogue and training. The Center supports a vibrant community of innovative scholars and practitioners who undertake cutting-edge research to guide policy decisions. For more information about the center, visit usmex.ucsd.edu and or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Till next time.